Hello everybody and welcome to another edition of All My Movies. Today we will be covering one of my favorite Christmas movies of all time and at the end of the show I'm going to give you what I believe to be the final word on why Die Hard 1988 is one of the best Christmas movies of all time no matter what anybody else and that includes Bruce Willis has to say about it. Before we jump into the show though I would like to remind everybody that we are less than 10 days away from the end of the movie trivia Schmodown season, and as it always does, this season is going to end with a bang. I'm talking about the Schmodown Spectacular, the trivia event to end all trivia events, and it all goes down on December 12th at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. Six huge matches that will determine the end of this season. It has been a crazy, crazy season, and one of those matches will feature myself, I will be attempting to defend the Schmodown singles belt for a record-breaking third time consecutively. If I can do this, I'm going to set records. I am so ready for this match. I've been preparing for it. I can't wait to play it. I have a difficult opponent in the rookie phenom, Adam the Coyote Collins, but I am not letting that coyote sink his teeth into my belt. I am going to fight and scrap for every inch. And there are two ways that you can ensure that you won't miss a minute of the action. You can go to the SchmodownLive.com. There you can get a $9.99 pay-per-view ticket to see all six matches well worth the money or you can go to patreon.com slash schmodown and become a ten dollar patron you will get a free pass to watch the spectacular i promise you you do not want to miss one second of these matches So today, Die Hard is coming off the shelf, a movie that I have seen countless times. One thing that I forget all the time about Die Hard is that it is based on a book. It's based on a 1979 novel called Nothing Lasts Forever, written by Roderick Thorpe. And while there are some similarities, there are also some big differences. The biggest difference being that the main character in the novel is Joe Leland, not John McClane. There was already a movie made starring the character of Joe Leland called The Detective, starring Frank Sinatra, that came out years before Die Hard was released released, but the basic setup is the same. Leland is visiting an office building, although in the book he's visiting his daughter, not his wife, Uh, but there are terrorists. There is a terrorist named Gruber. You have the character of Ellis. You have the character of Al Powell. There are a lot of things that are are very close together, but some huge divergences, the big one being that in the book, Gruber does fall out of the window of the skyscraper, but he also takes Leland's daughter, who he's visiting, with him, and so the book ends on a very sour, somber, down note. As a matter of fact, it's not even really clear whether Leland is going to have survived this ordeal. Obviously, in adapting the book, they went for a much more upbeat ending to the film uh, and made a lot of other changes to the story itself. Jeb Stewart, who was a first-time screenwriter, took the initial crack at the script, and he added a lot of the character traits that are specific to John McClane, particularly his relationship with Holly and the idea that this was a marriage that had to be mended and that this would be the driving emotional force behind both characters in the film. I think that that was a very smart idea. You think you have a clue as to what my idea of I know exactly. Be, what your idea of our marriage should be. And from this germ of an idea, he brought that dimension to John McClane. It's about a 35-year-old man who should have said he's sorry to his wife, 
and then terrorists take over the building. Stephen E. D'Souza also did a draft of the script and brought in a lot of the things that we would know from Die Hard. And D'Souza was somebody who had had a great run as a writer. He had already worked on 48 Hours. He'd already worked on the screenplay for Commando, the screenplay for The Running Man. So a lot of 80s action films already under his belt. And so with the script, the search began for who is going to star in this movie. Now, as I mentioned, they were contractually obligated because this movie could be seen as a sequel to the movie that detective to offer the role to Frank Sinatra, who was far too old to have played the part. Thank goodness he said no. Uh, And so then the search began for what action star was going to fill the shoes of John McClane. And offers went out to Arnold Schwarzenegger, offers went out to so many people. Ultimately, it was decided that Bruce Willis would play the role of McClane. And while this seems like a no-brainer now, it wasn't so much that when they were doing the film. When Bruce Willis was cast, he was a big star on television. He'd won an Emmy for his work on Moonlighting, which was a big ratings hit, but he hadn't really been able to translate that success into film roles. He'd been in some small parts, and then he'd had one major leading role. It was in a movie that was not a big critical hit. It was an okay box office hit called Blind Date with Kim Basinger, but that was pretty much it. So when you look at where he was and the fact that they gave him the lead in this kind of movie, it was actually a bit of a risk for the studio. This could have been seen as a risky decision, but turned out to be perhaps the best decision that you could make for this movie, because what Bruce Willis did was give the character of John McClane a relatability, a relatability that was very important for the audiences watching the film. With Bruce, you suddenly had someone who looked like a normal guy, who, for a change, looked like he was overmatched. You want your hero to be an underdog, but when Arnold Schwarzenegger's the hero, it's hard for Arnold to look like an underdog. And when you look back at the movie, it is one of those roles where you cannot imagine any other actor playing this part. Uh, Alan Rickman himself, in this interview from the the behind-the-scenes-making documentary of the movie, talks about Bruce Willis being perfect for that part. Bruce was the right man for the job. You know, the ironic aside coming out of the lift of one side of the mouth and the one eyebrow out. Perfect fit. And that perfection really just seeps through that performance. And and it's the smart-ass nature of John McClane. The fact that he can always come back at you with a quip, that he's not the bronzed, invincible statue that was the ideal of the 80s action hero. He was sensitive, he was an everyman, he was scared, he wasn't afraid to show that he was scared. He brought an entirely new level of relatability to the action movie hero, and it's something that other movies would then bring in. And it really did kick off a new era of action filmmaking here in the United States because all of a sudden the vulnerabilities that you see in those heroes weren't weaknesses, they were assets. They were humanizing. Come out to the coast, we'll get together, have a few laughs. So you have Bruce Willis in the lead, you have Joel Silver, a producer of Lethal Weapon and many other successful movies behind the scenes. Then they brought on John McTiernan. Now McTiernan had just had a big hit the previous year with Arnold Schwarzenegger's Predator. So to bring him from Predator into Die Hard, what a twosome, what a back-to-back duo of movies that is. McTiernan, though, at first was not interested in the script, and it had to do with the fact that he, he thought the story was way too dour because it had to do with terrorism. And he really wanted a way to brighten up that story. People can have fun with a robbery. A terrorist story is, by definition, dark and unhappy. But with a good caper, you know, you can appreciate the bad guys too. And that allows us to put essentially some joy in the 
bad guy's activity. That joy and that humor that McTiernan wanted to add to the script, I think, is a big part of why the movie has endured for so long. And also the idea of not being afraid to be ridiculous because it's supposed to be fun. It's a movie that's supposed to be fun, and it's very obvious that John McTiernan got that very early on. A lot of people have commented, and they're completely right, that the plot in this is ludicrous. So terrorists pretending to be terrorists so they could be robbers is ridiculous. But we can enjoy an intention on the part of the bad guys to cleverly snatch a whole pile of money. You can't enjoy it if right at this point he was trying to get the money because of some political thing. The sense of joy would go out of the movie at that instant. But even when you look beyond the main names that are involved with the film, it is a who's who. You have Jan de Bont as the director of photography. You have Michael Kamen doing the music. And you have Frank Uriosti, who's one of the two credited editors for the film. This was his career lineup at one point in order. Oscar nominee for Robocop, Oscar nominee for Die Hard, Roadhouse, Total Recall, Oscar nominee for Basic Instinct, Cliffhanger, and Tombstone. If you loved any sort of action-related movie between the years of 1987 and 1993, there's a good chance that Frank Uriosti was one of the editors making sure that each beat of that action film worked. I've always said that a great movie starts with the script, and something that I don't think people give enough credit to with Die Hard is the screenplay, because it's not just that it's funny, although it is very funny. This channel is reserved for emergency calls only. Oh, it's also the fact that it is logically sound. And I know that sounds stupid in a movie about terrorists bombing a building and a guy jumping off a roof tied to a fire hose. I don't mean logically sound in that way. I mean, they go the distance to make sure that the things that you do see in the movie make sense. For example, the first scene that we see on the airplane when the passenger sitting next to McLean notices that he's nervous and he suggests taking off his socks and shoes and making fist with his toes on the carpet. After you get where you're going, take off your shoes and your socks. Then you walk around on the rug barefoot and make fists with your toes. Number one, it establishes that we have a vulnerable action hero, but number two, it motivates him to take his shoes off. It doesn't seem like a reach that he would do that, and it establishes why he's running around barefoot, which ends up being very consequential to that character later on. But it's not just that they establish why he's barefoot, they even establish why he doesn't pick up shoes from other people that he kills along the way. Nine million terrorists in the world, and I gotta kill one with feet small and my sister. And it speaks to a process where there are actually people sitting in a room saying, does what we're saying or doing make sense in this movie? And when you see the low bar that is set for so many action movies, the fact that somebody is actually thinking of these things, it, whether you realize it consciously or subconsciously, makes Die Hard a much better movie. Even the contrivances in the screenplay serve some kind of function. One thing that when we were watching this, the scene where John walks into the lobby and, and checks in on the little screen and then it tells him where to go and then the guy's like, oh, they're the only people left in the building. 30th floor, the party. They're the only ones left in the building. Well, the question would be, then why did he have to check in? Because if there's only one group of people in the entire building and everything else is empty, then it doesn't make any sense. But it's to establish the fact that John's wife, Holly, is going by her maiden name. It brings him into the situation tense. It's a little piece of exposition that you don't have to do in just a straight conversation between the two of them. So even these scenes where it's like, oh, well, why would you do that? That doesn't make sense. It is to serve a purpose. And I think that's important 
important when you look at a movie and you say like, well, why did they do this? Or why did they do that? If there is something that's unbelievable, if there's something that seems unnecessary, but it serves a purpose as opposed to just being a loose end or bad writing, then I think it's excusable in the film. And that's one thing that I'm kind of drives me crazy is this need that all films have to be perfect. Because the fact of the matter is there are very, very few films that are perfect. But even films that have quote unquote plot holes or logic problems, there is a certain suspension of disbelief that you have to give movies. And if what they're doing means that it advances the story in some way, instead of being a shortcut in a badly written screenplay, then I think you have to give it that leeway or otherwise you're just going to have a bunch of boring movies. Another thing that often gets taken for granted is production design. And the production design on Die Hard was done by Jackson Degovia. And it is so amazing. Like, you know, the movie wasn't entirely shot inside the Fox building, which was under construction, which doubled for Nakatomi Plaza. There were sets, including Holly's office, that entire huge expanse that were built on a stage. And I love that set. There's so much going on with them. It's so dynamic. Uh, And reading and listening to the commentaries and stuff, it was meant to evoke Frank Lloyd Wright as if Frank Lloyd Wright's stuff had been disassembled and put into this office. But again, that was even motivated for a reason. Uh, Yes, Joel Silver, the producer, was very enamored of Frank Lloyd Wright and wanted that stuff included in the set for the movie. But the production designer also says that he brought that in because in his mind, the Nakatomi Corporation has come in from Japan and they are absorbing Americana. And we see a little bit of that in the dialogue from Mr. Takagi when he's meeting John for the first time. I didn't realize they celebrated Christmas in Japan. They were flexible. Pearl didn't work out, so we got you with tape decks. And when I talk about the great screenplay for the movie, that conversation also is able to drop in a little exposition about the building itself. It's quite a place you have here. It will be if we ever get it finished. There's still several floors under construction. And that idea of the building being under construction is something else that the designer Jackson Degovia wanted to give to the film. He says in the commentary for the movie that he wanted this to feel like a jungle picture, as if this was a man who was being hunted. And so having these floors under construction was able to give him that look and that feel. My first insight when I read the script and in my first meeting with John McTiernan, I said this was a jungle picture. And he is in the jungle. It's like the naked prey, you know. Another reason that this movie works so well is not just John McClane and Bruce Willis, but everybody else in the film is so perfectly cast. Starting with Bonnie Bedelia as Holly Gennaro slash Holly McClane, who I think is criminally underappreciated in this movie because of everybody else, she has to play it straight. She has the straight man role, and everybody else gets to go wackadoodle and do whatever they want. But if you don't believe her love for John, and if you don't believe John's love for her, then nothing else about the film works because you have to believe that these two are driven to see each other. He's still alive. What? Only John can drive somebody that crazy. But it's not just that relationship. It's the fact that she is able to square off and and really go one-on-one with every other actor in the movie and hold her own as a character when it would be very easy to get blown off the screen by Alan Rickman. I have a request. What idiot put you in charge? You did. When you murdered my boss. If there's one thing that I think the Die Hard franchise did completely wrong, it was sidelining Holly. Uh, You know, she's in the second movie, but they don't really meet until the end. The third movie, she's, I think, a voice on a phone. And then she's just mentioned in the other movies. That Holly-John relationship is so central 
to both characters and John's motivation. It was his primary motivation in the first two films. And if you can't find a way to make the dynamic between those two characters interesting, maybe that's a sign you should stop making diehard movies. Kids would love to have you at the house. I would have. I would too. One of the least recognizable names in the cast is Hart Bachner, but he plays one of the most recognizable characters, and that would be Ellis. Hans, Bobby, I'm your white knight. All of that business, the cocaine, the 80s-ness of it all, apparently is stuff that he himself brought to the role. I can't claim any credit for Hart. Hart came in with this. He's hysterical. He had so much fun with it, I think, because he'd always been asked to play the straight versions of it, and it was like he was getting a chance to make fun of all sorts of people he'd had to work for. Of course, you can't talk about the cast of Die Hard for too long without talking about Hans Gruber himself, the late, more than great, Alan Rickman. Now I have a machine gun. Ho, ho. What makes Rickman's performance even more impressive is the fact that he was not a seasoned screen veteran. As a matter of fact, he'd never been in a movie before. I loved working with John because, well, first of all, I, I had no other experience. He was the first American director I'd worked with, so I wasn't really quite sure what to expect. And I think fairly quickly it became clear that he wasn't quite sure what to expect either. One thing that I like about this movie is that nobody wrote it off as just a cheap, dumb action movie. They actually went out and sought actors who were going to bring everything to these roles. And that's what Alan Rickman did. He brought all of his preparation, all of his training as a stage and screen actor and dumped it into what could have been a very generic bad guy role. I come to a play or a a movie knowing that the last thing you can ever do is to judge your character. So I'm just playing a person who wants s certain things. He's also able to match Bruce Willis beat for beat, and Gruber's rivalry with John McClane is much like Captain Kirk's rivalry with Khan in Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, which is you have these two iconic characters clashing, but they spend little to no screen time together. The fact that these two actors can so convincingly spar with each other without being there face-to-face -to, -face to speak to one another is just a testament to how much both of them knew what they were doing. You are most troublesome for a security guard. Sorry, Hans, wrong guess. Would you like to go for double jeopardy where the scores can really change? Speaking of actors who only get to talk to Bruce Willis on the radio, you also have Reginald Bell Johnson as Al Powell. And in addition to being McLean's partner, more or less, I've always thought that Al Powell kind of plays the role of the audience because you have Special Agent Johnson and Special Agent Johnson, no relation, from the FBI down there. You have Deputy Chief Dwayne T. Robinson, played by Paul Gleason, down there. I've got 100 people down here, and they're covered with glass. Glass? Who gives a shit about glass? Al Powell is the one who's playing the role of the audience. He's playing you and me. He's the one that's looking at these characters and saying, like, no, you've got to get out there and help him. He is alone tired, and he hasn't seen diddly squat from anybody down here. Now you're gonna stand there and tell me that he's gonna give a damn about what you do to him if he makes it out of there alive? He is an advocate for John McClane, and I think it's something that the movie needs, and that, again, a smart screenplay understands that it needs. You don't just want the audience silently rooting for McClane. You want somebody in the movie to also be rooting for McClane, to be the one that's right when you know that everybody else is wrong. It's a smart tactic because it gets you involved in the film that much more, and it gives you an extra big cheer moment at the end 
after Hans Gruber has been vanquished, when we get the redemption of Al Pal, we get his hero moment. Something, again, that has been set up earlier in the film that you really don't know if they're going to come back to, and yet they come back to it in a great way. You know, when you're a rookie, they can teach you everything about being a cop except how to live with a mistake. There are so many great actors and performances in this film that we really can't talk about every single one of them in turn, but you do have Paul Gleason as Dwayne Robinson. Excuse me, sir, but what about the body that fell out the window? Well, who knows? It's probably some stockbroker got depressed. You also have Devereaux White as Argyle. Look at this, CD, CB, TV, telephone. Clarence Gilliard Jr. as Theo. Oh my god, the quarterback is toast! And in addition to what they contributed on an acting and story level, it turns out that because at some points during the shoot, Willis was back to shooting Moonlighting during the day and couldn't exactly be there every single night, they served a practical purpose as well. Bruce had to work on the daytime on Moonlighting, so and he was exhausted at night, so Joel said to me, uh, you know, see if you can find more stuff for the other people to do so Bruce could get a break. So one of the reasons that the other characters got to be so rich is I was vamping. We'll continue breaking down Die Hard in just a couple moments, but first a word from our sponsor. With everything going on right now, of course, health is at the forefront of everyone's mind, myself included. But it's really hard right now to think about going to a doctor's office, whether you're worried about the safety or the availability of medical care. Thankfully, there's now a practical and affordable way for you to take control of your own health and get personalized care right from your own home. SteadyMD is your personal doctor online, and it is telehealth done right. You start off by taking a quiz to get matched to your primary care physician based on your specific health needs. Then you set a one-hour appointment online with that physician, and after that, your doctor is available to you anytime you need by phone, text, or video chat. Now, unlike some other services, this is not just some random doctor on call that you'll be seeing. Each doctor at SteadyMD has a limited number of patients so that they can give you the time and attention you deserve. I went and took the quiz on SteadyMD and it really does take just a couple minutes to fill out, but the questions are very thorough. They're asking you things like, what kind of diet do you have? Are you keto, paleo, gluten-free, everything like that? Are you experiencing stress, anxiety, depression? Do you wanna lose weight? Do you have asthma? All the kinds of things that you would get asked at a normal doctor's office when you're doing your intake, they're asking you on SteadyMD, but it doesn't take 10 minutes to fill out. And what I liked about the result of that questionnaire is when it was done, it showed me a list of different physicians that I could go to and also what they specialize in. So even though SteadyMD already knew exactly what I was looking for from a doctor, they still gave me a lot of different options depending on where I wanted to put my focus right now. And SteadyMD can handle so many different things, whether you want to get healthy, stay healthy, manage chronic conditions that you already have, get help sleeping, help with your anxiety, losing weight. There are so many different things that they can help you with, and it's all personalized to make sure you get the care that you want. All of this is done from the comfort of your own home. You don't have to worry about waiting rooms. You don't have to worry about germs. All of the prescriptions are sent to your local pharmacy. All of your medical records are in one place. And you get unlimited access to your doctor for $99 a month. No additional visit fees or co-pays. Plus, if you already have health insurance, SteadyMD will help you understand your insurance and help you get the most out of it. But if you don't, don't worry. Health insurance is not required to use SteadyMD. 
SteadyMD is now accepting members of all ages in all 50 states. So go to SteadyMD.com movies where you can take the free quiz and get matched to the doctor that's right for you. SteadyMD.com movies. There is no risk and no long-term commitment. Once again, that's SteadyMD.com movies. And I'd like to thank them for sponsoring the podcast. You know we got a pool going on you. What kind of odds am I getting? You don't want to know. Put me down for 20. I'm good for it. All of these things culminate in one of the best action finales of all time, including one of my favorite stunts of all time, as John McClane jumps off the top of Nakatomi Plaza just as the roof explodes. And then we get the final showdown between John McClane and Hans Gruber. And again with John McTiernan, this was him trying to transcend what was on the page, because this setup, this hero-villain meetup, was not a scenario that he was particularly enthused about. I was terrified building this scene because it's such a cliche. The villain holding the gun to the head of the hero's love interest. Literally, I've seen it 50 or 60 times. No, hundreds of times. Um, I think we got away with it all right. This culminates in one of the most memorable 80s bad guy deaths of all time as Hans Gruber falls to his death. And this was so well shot. It does not look like a special effects shot. Think about the fact that RoboCop came out the year before in 1987 and had a very similar shot as far as a guy in a suit falling out of a window to his death. Look at how terrible that shot looks and look at how amazing the Hans Gruber death shot looks to this day. You have Rickman's performance, which according to him uh, was something that he wasn't necessarily asked to do, but felt a little bit of pressure to say yes to. They said, look, this is the shot. And we can of course put it on the back of a stuntman's head and have him fall face down. And then they kind of shrugged and looked hopefully at me. And I looked at the script and I thought, no, I'm not going out face down. So I said, no, I'll do it. And you add in the fact that the stunt coordinator apparently pulled a bit of a fast one to get a very believable reaction from Rickman in that moment. I said, okay, I'm gonna let you go on three, two, one, go. So I told my guy that was releasing and let him go on one. And he got that expression on his face. No acting was required for that shot. Following Gruber's death and Al's hero moment, John and Holly then get into the limo with Argyle and drive away into the sunset. And this is another one of those things I was talking about where you have to go with the effect that the movie is making over the practicalities of it because at the very minimum, they should be staying to be debriefed and questioned. There would be so much paperwork. Nobody really knows what's happened. Their Christmas day would be spent doing nothing but talking to police officers, FBI investigators. There were explosions. Two federal agents are dead. Not a chance in hell that they'd be allowed to just drive away. And secondly, if they were allowed to drive away, I really hope that Argyle's driving John to a hospital because he's got a gunshot wound. He has severe injuries on both of his feet. Uh, they are not going home. They need to go straight to the nearest ER, if anywhere. These are the practical questions that you ask, but of course it works better for the movie for the two of them to make out in the back of the limo as they go home to open Christmas presents with their kids. If you're literal with every single movie, then you're not going to enjoy any of them. Die Hard was pegged by Fox before it was even in production as the studio's tentpole summer blockbuster for summer of 1988. And the trailer for Die Hard is one of my favorites. As a matter of fact, it's trailers like this 
upon which honest trailers stand. It's Christmas Eve in LA. California. And New York cop John McLean has come to see his wife. I missed you. Instead, he's going to have to save her. This is the kind of trailer that is now parodied, but I love it for what it is. It is perfect 80s trailer cheese. He's an easy guy to like. Come out to the coast, we'll get together, have a few laughs. And a hard man to kill. Fox may have been confident in the movie, but one thing that they were not necessarily confident in still was their star, Bruce Willis. And that was probably because a few months before Die Hard opened in 1988, Bruce Willis was in yet another critical and financial flop called Sunset. So the famous Die Hard poster that's half Bruce Willis and half the skyscraper, that turns out that was a little bit of marketing magic on the part of Fox because they were trying to de-emphasize Willis a little bit. As a matter of fact, some print ads for sneak previews of the movie didn't show Bruce Willis in them at all. It was just a picture of the building. Now, Fox has denied that they were trying to de-emphasize Bruce Willis, but the fact of the matter is that Bruce Willis kind of had the stink of a failed film actor on him already. And this wasn't helped by the fact that he had been paid over $5 million for his role in this movie, which was an unheard of number for somebody who had yet to prove that they could open a movie. So a lot of people were rooting for Bruce Willis to fail or were convinced that he would fail. It was only when this movie came out that people realized that he is the heart and soul of this film. She's heard me saying I love you a thousand times. She never heard me say I'm sorry. In hindsight, it's easy to say it's Die Hard. Everybody loves it. But that was certainly not the case when it came out. As a matter of fact, the movie got kind of mixed reviews, including from Siskel and Ebert. I love featuring their reviews on this show because in many ways, to so many people, including myself at the time, they were the voice of American film criticism. And while Siskel had some issues but ultimately liked the film, Ebert could not get over the incompetence of the police, and it derailed his enjoyment of the entire movie. There was one character in this movie, a deputy chief, whose actions are so stupid and so unmotivated and wrongheaded that finally he just brings the movie to a stop every time he opens his mouth. Bad writing. He always says the wrong thing. He understands nothing. This is where I say it's important that you can still admire somebody and disagree with them because I think that is such a wrong-headed criticism. Yeah, of course he's wrong all the time. That's his character. There wouldn't be any movie if he was right all the time. There'd be no conflict. In my estimation, he had Die Hard completely wrong. There are I mean, always grown at things. There like are idiotic that. cops in the Dirty Harry movies too, oh, and you no. laugh at them. I, the, Come on, because Harry's this smarter. This is not an idiotic. Is a, this is not an idiotic cop. This is idiotic writing no, to make no. a cop like this. No. In its first week of wide release, Die Hard came in third place behind Who Framed Roger Rabbit and Coming to America both films that had been in release for over a month at that point. And while Die Hard stayed in the top five for three months, it never held the number one spot at the box office, not even later in its theatrical run. Die Hard was the seventh highest grossing film of 1988, just above another cinematic classic, Tom Cruise's Cocktail, but well below Crocodile Dundee 2, Twins, and Big. Another thing that might surprise you is that Die Hard was nominated for four Academy Awards, Best Sound, Best Sound Effects Editing, Best Film Editing, and Best Visual Effects. It would lose all but one of those to Who Framed Roger Rabbit, the other one it lost to the jazz biopic Bird. But its most immediate lasting legacy was reshaping the face of action movies altogether because the pitch for every action movie suddenly became Die Hard Inna or Die Hard Anna, which is something that screenwriter Steven D'Souza recalls being pitched years after he co-wrote the screenplay for the actual original film. 
I get a call from a producer that says, you should do what you write. And I've got the script. It's right up your alley. It's a big action movie. Fix the script and you can direct it. I'll say, okay, what is it? He said, it's Die Hard in a building. But perhaps the second most enduring legacy of Die Hard is the ongoing debate about whether or not this is a Christmas movie. Now, a couple years ago at a Comedy Central roast, Bruce Willis made a very controversial statement by taking a hard stance on this issue. Die Hard is not a Christmas movie. With respect to Mr. Willis, and I understand that he's the person in the movie, he's the face on the cover of this Blu-ray collection in front of me, I have to respectfully disagree because I think that Die Hard is objectively and finally 100% a Christmas movie. And here's why. Number one, it starts on Christmas Eve and it ends on Christmas Day. There is no time in the setting of this movie where Christmas is not directly involved in what's going on. Is Daddy coming home with you? Well, we'll see what Santa and Mommy can do, okay? And it's not like nobody acknowledges that it's Christmas. Hans Gruber talks about the fact that it's Christmas. It's Christmas, Theo. It's the time of miracles, so be of good cheer. When the vault door opens, they say Merry Christmas. The score incorporates Christmas music into it. It is literally infused into the music of the movie. The climax of the entire film has the main character with a gun strapped to his back using Christmas packaging tape as jingle bells play on the soundtrack. (laughs) The last line of the movie is about Christmas. Their idea of Christmas, I gotta be here for New Year's. (laughs) The last song of the movie is Let It Snow, a song that you play at Christmas. Let it snow, let it snow, let it snow. When you're trying to determine if something is a Christmas movie or not a Christmas movie, I think you have to ask the question, could the movie exist if Christmas was not a factor? Some people would look at Die Hard and say yes, but I would say absolutely not, because the entire plot hinges on the fact that Hans Gruber can take hostages on this floor, but have the rest of the building be completely empty. That only happens one night a year when they're doing the Christmas party on Christmas Eve when everybody else is at home with their families. This isn't a Shane Black movie where you just throw up a Christmas tree in the background and say it's Christmas, but the season is completely superfluous to the plot of the movie. Everything about this movie, from the music to the plot to the resolution of the film, is essentially infused with Christmas. Die Hard is an essential Christmas movie, and I will fight anybody who says otherwise. And by fight, I mean talk to them probably a little more calmly than I'm talking right now. Unless it's Bruce Willis, I would probably just shake my head and agree with him because he scares me. My personal history with Die Hard starts sometime in my teens, and I can't really put my finger on it. As I recall, the first time I actually saw the movie, and a lot of it seeps into you through cultural osmosis, but I remember watching it at my friend Will's house on VHS and really, really liking it. Then when I got a DVD player, there was a DVD version that was put out in 1999. I'm guessing I probably got that version. I remember I bought Die Hard first, and I hadn't seen any of the other sequels. I ended up buying the sequels one at a time, also on DVD, when there were only three Die Hard movies. So I've seen it at home. I can't tell you how many 
times. Mara and I went to see it in a theater once on a film print a couple years ago. That was so much fun to see this movie in a theater with an audience. It's one of the things that I miss so much about what's going on right now. There is no substitution for seeing films like Die Hard with other people. And that's one of the shames is that so many people are going to go through their whole lives having only watched Die Hard at home. It is a different experience with an audience. And so if there comes a time when we can do these kinds of things again and you get a chance to see Die Hard in a theater, I very much recommend that you do so because it is a blast. But it's not just people like me that consider Die Hard a key part of their film lives. As a matter of fact, in 2017, Die Hard was selected to be on the National Film Registry, which is curated by the Library of Congress. It was inducted along with other films, including Memento, The Goonies, Titanic, and Superman. Die Hard remains an action classic and a classic in general to me. This is the latest version of Die Hard that I own. It's part of the 25th anniversary Blu-ray collection that contains, at that time, the four existing Die Hard films. There has allegedly been a fifth Die Hard film that was produced that I may or may not have seen, but I'd rather not acknowledge right now. It's safe to say that we're not going to be doing an episode, even though I am a staunch completionist on the fifth Die Hard film. I'm perfectly content to just talk about the first four. Uh, This is a disc that's got a some pretty cool things. First of all, it has the raw footage from the newscasts or a lot of the newscasts that you see in the movies. And that includes some of the bloopers that you didn't see. Well, Gail, by the time, or by this time, I'm sorry. <laughs> Entertainment tonight. <laughs> It's also packed with trailers for the films, picture galleries, and they have a bonus disc which includes a feature-length documentary called Decoding Die Hard, which as we cover these sequels, you're going to hear more about. But it does cover a lot about the first film, the behind the scenes of it, the development of it, and its legacy and impact. It is a really great documentary if you're looking at the franchise as a whole up to that point. And that wraps up my thoughts on the action classic Die Hard. I hope it is a classic in your house around the holidays. It certainly is around mine. Thank you so much for watching the show. If you are watching us on YouTube on the Schmodown Entertainment Network, please head over to Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you enjoy listening to podcasts. Subscribe to the show there as well. Put it in your pocket and take it with you. Leave us a rating and review. And if you're listening to us and you want to see the visual of the show, you can check us out on YouTube on the Schmodown Entertainment Network. And don't forget the Schmodown Spectacular on December 12th. You can either buy the pay-per-view ticket on the Schmodown Live or become a $10 patron at patreon.com slash schmodown it is something that you're not going to want to miss i think it's going to be a lot of fun thanks for listening to me yammer on about die hard next week we'll be covering yet another holiday classic but for now it's time to go back on the show yippee ki mr falcon